Good morning. I have a little story, of course, as usual, as we do. At Sunday school, they were learning how God created everything, including human beings. Johnny was especially intent when the teacher told him how Eve was created out of Adam's ribs. Later in the week, his mother noticed him lying down as though he was ill and said, Johnny, what's the matter? And Johnny responded, said, I have a pain in my side. I think I'm going to have a wink. <laughs> <laughs> we have to be careful when we teach these kids. <laughs> This second semester, we will be studying three books we've never studied before. Zechariah, Second Peter, and Malachi. Zechariah and Malachi are post-exile minor prophets, along with Haggai. Their writings are the last three books of the Old Testament. Minor prophets doesn't mean that they're less important prophets. It just means that their books are shorter. Zechariah began his ministry in 520 BC, about two months after Haggai, and Malachi about 90 years after that, 433 to 424 BC. They all prophesied to Judah. There are about 30 Zechariahs in the Bible. It was a very popular name. It means Jehovah remembers. The book of Zechariah is about God remembering his people. This is the time of Reconstruction. In 538 BC, Cyrus the Persian freed the captives of Israel to settle their homeland, and about 50,000 returned from Babylon with Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. That included Zechariah, who was born in Babylon, and his grandfather Edom, who was a priest. So Zechariah was in the priestly line. He is mentioned several times in the Bible as the son of Edo, because at that time there was no Jewish word for grandfather. It is thought that his father, Berechiah, had died at an early age. According to tradition, Zechariah, a prophet and priest, was a member of the great synagogue, which was a council of 120. They later became the ruling elders of the nation called Sanhedrin. The rebuilding of the temple began immediately on their return. The temple base was laid, and then they abandoned the work because of opposition from neighbors and indifference from within. So God raised up Haggai and Zechariah two months after Haggai to get the people going again on rebuilding the temple. Two different ministries, same message. Haggai was blunt, straightforward, and rebuked them. Zechariah gave the same message, but he was encouraging by emphasizing the coming of Messiah, revealing God's plan for their future. It was a message of hope. As a result, the temple was completed four years later in 516 BC. That would be Ezra 615. The book of Zechariah has been called the most messianic, apocalyptic, 
and concerned about the final events of history called eschatology in the Old Testament. It is often called the apocalypse of the Old Testament. Of the minor prophets, Zechariah has the most prophecies about Messiah in the Bible. For instance, Christ's entry into Jerusalem on a colt, 9-9. He will be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver, 11, verses 12 and 13. The conversion of Israel, 12-10. And famous verses, for instance, the last part of 2-8. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. 4-6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The New Testament alludes to Zechariah 41 times. The book is basically divided into three sections. Chapters 1 through 6 are visions. Zechariah has eight visions in the night. Not dreams, visions. The first vision summarizes the other seven by giving the general theme. Details are left to the rest of the visions to explain. The visions reveal God's purpose for the future of his chosen people. Chapters 7 and 8 are questions and answers concerning national fasting. And chapters 9 through 14 are burdens of the Lord. Burdens of the Lord are judgments. In Revelation 10, 8 through 10, John is speaking of a little book he took from the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. He was instructed to eat it. When he did, his mouth was sweet as honey, but his stomach became bitter as the thought of Christ returns is sweet to us. Before that happens, there will be much judgment and bloodshed, much bitter. In the future, God will defeat the enemies of Israel. He will restore his people, purify them, and make them supreme among the nations of the world. Amen. Second Peter 1.1 1, 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And so, with humility, Peter identifies himself as the author. He doesn't say where he wrote this letter, but the consensus seems to be that he wrote it from prison in Rome, where he was facing imminent death, much like Paul when he wrote 2 Timothy. Nero, who had an incredible desire to build, had burned down the city in order to rebuild it. The people were devastated. Everything had been destroyed. Nero knew he had to redirect their hostility away from him, so he made the Christian scapegoats. Christians were already hated because they were associated with the Jews and were perceived as being hostile to the Roman culture. They were persecuted unmercifully. In John 21:18, Jesus foretold Peter of his death and his old age with his hands stretched out. Peter would be crucified, and according to church tradition, Peter was martyred in his persecution shortly after writing this letter. He was crucified upside down because he felt he really wasn't worthy enough to be crucified like his Lord. According to 2 Peter 3.1, this is the second letter Peter is sending to the same group of Christians in the area of Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. Unlike 1 Peter, where he is dealing with living victoriously in the midst of escalating persecutions of the church, 2 Peter is dealing with false teachers 
and reminds these believers of biblical truths and fundamental Christian, Christian teaching. Everyone needs reminders of biblical truths, and the concept of knowledge appears 16 times in these three chapters. Knowledge is the recurring theme of the letter. Heresy had infiltrated the church, and for their own protection, Peter wanted to remind them of what he had already taught them. He wanted them to know how to defend themselves against these false teachers and their lies. John MacArthur said, speaking of the false teachers, Peter expected that their heretical doctrines and immoral lifestyles would result in more damage in the future. Thus Peter, in an almost last will and testament, chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, wrote to warn the beloved believers in Christ about the doctrinal dangers they were facing. Peter is describing the general character of these false teachers as opposed to the specifics of what they were teaching. He does, however, in chapter 2, verse 1, say, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. These are evil men, products of Satan, who present themselves as pastors and teachers and evangelists of Christ, but who actually deny the sovereignty of Jesus Christ and essential doctrines of the faith. They claim to be Christians, yet follow after their own lusts. They are immoral and discredit the true faith. They mock the second coming. These heretics hurt believers and discredit the gospel. Peter is teaching that the primary solution to false teaching is knowledge of true scripture and developing godly character. This letter is as relevant today as it was when Peter wrote it, and the remedy is the same. Chuck Swindoll says it this way, our knowledge of God through his word is the first line of defense against the conflicts that threaten to tear us apart. Is this letter relevant today? Absolutely. Teachers like this and their errors are still with us. We need to study and know God's words so we can know the truth from error when we hear it. As Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our final study of this semester is the Old Testament book of Malachi. There are about 90 years separating Haggai and Zechariah, whose prophecies starting in 520 BC, from Malachi, who prophesied around 433 to 424 BC. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, written by the last post-exile prophet, Malachi, whose name means my messenger, or the Lord's messenger. Nothing is known of the person of Malachi. The name appears nowhere else in the Old Testament. However, Jewish tradition identifies him as a member of the great synagogue that collected and preserved the scriptures. Most agree that Malachi prophecy during the Persian period after the reconstruction and dedication of the second temple. 
The temple had been rebuilt and the walls were around Jerusalem. Malachi was probably a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah during the period of the restoration, about a hundred years after Israel's return from the land, from, to the land from captivity. They were the return generation. To me, this book is heartbreaking. Haggai and Zechariah prophesied the coming of Messiah, who would bring deliverance and blessing to the nation and encourage them in obedience. But the nation had become so degenerate, it was in worse spiritual condition. Then when it was brought under Assyrian and Babylonian captivity, like the book of Revelation where Christ is writing what he thinks about the condition of the churches, here God is telling the nation of Israel his thoughts about them. The book is in question and answer format between God through Malachi and the nation of Israel, seven of them in an argumentative style. The people were complacent in their sins. Israel had not kept God's statutes. He never changes. Israel never changed their, re their rebellion. They thought they could maintain their relationship with God by formal ritual that was anything but sincere. Serious abuses had crept into Jewish life. The priests had become lax and degenerate. Defective and inferior sacrifices were allowed to be offered upon the temple altar. The people were neglecting their tithes. They divorced their Hebrew wives and married Gentile pagan women. Divorce was common. They did not respect the covenant of marriage. They questioned God's love for them. They challenged him. They did not respect him as father. They questioned why the ungodly prospered and why God had not judged the ungodly. The irony was lost on them. He was judging the ungodly. They questioned God's justice. The priests at that time were the Pharisees and Sadducees of the New Testament. In their sin, they did not understand why none of the promises of God's covenants had been fulfilled in their ultimate sense. <coughs> God, through Malachi, rebuked them on seven counts of specific acts of willful sin. He called them to repentance. And at times he acted as God's advocate in a lawsuit, where evidence of God's faithfulness and their unfaithfulness is presented. The day of the Lord is coming, chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Yet there is hope for the remnant of Israel, for those who love the Lord. Chapter 3, 16-18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And so God will gather his people, his remnant, to himself. Over 400 years of silence passed before the nation heard another prophet, John the Baptist, give them another message from God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Messiah has come. Amen. I pray this study will touch each of us in such a way as to encourage us in our Christian walk, that we would take the lessons we're being taught and strive to know and love God's word, to follow and obey our Lord Jesus Christ, so that we would become mature in the faith and honor him in our lives. Precious Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for these wonderful, wonderful books, Lord, and the lessons that you've shown us, Father. We think that we know those things, that you are faithful, Father. You are faithful in all our unfaithfulness. You are faithful to us. And Lord, we just ask that these ladies here will be diligent in their studies and in their efforts to learn your word and understand your word and to see you for who you are. And Lord, we just um, thank you for this time, for the blessing of our fellowship and our friendship and the blessing of our Bible study. In Jesus' name, amen.